Fresh from their adventures in a world inspired by Jules Verne, Shauna Keyes and Carl Yatsar find themselves in a world that mirrors much darker tales. Beneath a full moon that hangs motionless in the sky, they're forced to flee terrifying creatures that can only be vampires, only to run straight into a pack of werewolves. As the lycanthropes and undead battle, Carl is spirited away to the castle of the Vampire Queen. Meanwhile, Shauna finds short-lived refuge in a fortified village, where she learns that something has gone horribly wrong with the world in which she finds herself. Once, werewolves, vampires, and humans live there harmoniously. Now every group is set against each other, and entire villages are being mysteriously emptied of people. Somehow, Carl and Shauna must reunite, discover the mysteries of the shaping of this strange world, and escape it for the next, without being sucked dry, devoured, or worst of all, turned into creatures of the night themselves. Beneath the frozen gibbous moon, allies, enemies, surprises, adventures, and unsettling revelations await. So welcome to the Amphibian Press podcast. I'm V.S. Holmes, and with me today is Edward Willett, an amazing sci-fi fantasy author. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Give us a little bit of a background, you know, for, for those of us who haven't had a chance to, to dive into this world yet, um, about the series and your inspiration behind it. World Shapers is basically inspired by the idea of authors living inside the worlds that they create. I mean, if I'm not sure I want to live inside the worlds that I create, but, you know, I can imagine creating a world <laughs> I might want to live inside. Uh, and the, uh, mm-hmm. the the premise was always uh, that uh, someone would be traveling from these worlds. Uh, the other inspiration, I guess, was Doctor Who, because I think that's the greatest storytelling conceit that's ever been come up with, because within the, the Doctor Who framework, you can tell any kind of story set in any kind of world at any time in history or in the far future. And you don't even have to be consistent because... Uh, uh, timey wimey wobbly you know so i you know, yeah. those sort of two things came together i wanted to create a series that would allow me to tell that, those kinds of endlessly variable stories and uh, so that's that's kind of the inspiration uh the setup is uh in the first book world shaper uh, shauna keys appears to be she thinks she's living in the only world she is she doesn't know about shaped worlds but then something very strange happens there's what seems to be a terrorist attack mm-hmm. her friend is killed uh, and she can't believe it's happening. And uh, just like that, it didn't happen. It never happened. But her friend is still gone. Nobody even remembers oh, she wow. ever existed. And then Carl Yatzer shows up. He's the one you mentioned, this sort of mysterious stranger, and explains to her that it's not the only world. It's a shaped world. And she's the shaper. And for some reason, she doesn't remember that. He doesn't know why. And that this adversary has come into her world, is taking it over. And she, he's already stolen the knowledge of the making of the world from her. And they have to flee. But he thinks... Carl thinks that Shauna has the power to save other worlds if he can get her to other worlds and she can gather the knowledge of their shaping and take it all to the mysterious Igrer, who's this sort of mysterious woman at the center of this labyrinth <laughs> of shaped worlds. That's the setup. <laughs> and in the first book, um, Shauna and Carl basically flee the adversary across her version of our world, which is very similar, but with some some differences like oh, lacrosse <laughs> is a big professional sport. <laughs> just I just did that for fun. Uh, College kite fighting is really huge, too. And then in the uh, second world, uh, which was mentioned in the blurb, um, Mm -hmm. they end up in this world that's uh, inspired by Jules Verne. So it was all weird airships and floating islands and uh, submarines and all that kind of fun steampunky stuff. Mm -hmm. And then in this third world, um, they're now in this world with the werewolves and vampires and peasants. Oh, my. Uh, And uh, the blurb pretty much describes what their situation is. So. (laughs) That's kind of the setup. And there's the the goal is that uh, 
Sean is supposed to go to as many worlds as possible, gather the knowledge of their shaping and take it all to Agrair. Mm -hmm. That's that's so fascinating. And what a fun way to play with all these different worlds. Because, you know, I I write multiple genres my, myself, but I, I don't often cross these these different subgenres of speculative fiction within one series. And it's it's so fun to be able to pull all these different ones to, to together. And I mean, like you said, it, it works great for, for Doctor Who. Well, the other fun thing about it is that Shauna, her world, uh, she she took it over about 10 years ago and she comes from our world. And then she shaped her world about 10 years ago in real world time, which means that all her pop culture references are current up to about 10 years ago. <laughs> That's convenient. That, I get to make up new ones. <laughs> uh, so she makes, yeah, so she makes Star Trek jokes and Star Wars jokes. And she saw Buffy the Vampire Slayer and she knows all this stuff. So she's she's constantly making references that, that uh, Carl who comes from much further back in time, a um, hundred years or so back in time, doesn't get a lot of her references. And one of my favorite jokes is that she says, the worst thing about traveling to other worlds is that nobody gets your Star Trek jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a lot of fun with that. I think I, think I could <laughs> empathize with that because most of my friends uh, admit that I'm, I, I always think I'm the funniest. And uh, I, I usually am the only person getting my <laughs> jokes. So <laughs> I can I can feel for Shauna. <laughs> well, some jokes... Some jokes, especially in a book, are just for the author and maybe two or three people in the back of the room that happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, those those Easter eggs are are so much fun and really make being part of you know a close knit author community so much more fun when you're able to share those those little pieces for sure. So, in some of the the reviews that Moonlit World has received, um, uh, you know, a lot of readers are mentioning how you play with tropes. And we, you know, we've talked about how you're playing with, with world building and genres, but what are some of your favorite tropes and how are you working to subvert them in this series? Well, especially in this one, um, one of the other great things is that because these are shaped worlds and, and Shauna runs into this a couple of times, these are shaped worlds. They're not even the worlds that they draw their references mm -hmm. from. So she gets misled a couple of times, like in Jules Verne's world. She knows some about Jules Verne and some things that she thinks she knows turn out not to be so because the shaper, even though he was basing it on Jules Verne, wasn't slavishly following mm -hmm. Jules Verne. He just, you know, took the stuff he wanted and then and created his own version of it. And that happens as well in uh, uh, quite a bit in this one, because, uh, you know, there's things like uh, these these vampires can can have children. And have like multi generations of vampires, and Shauna wonders how that works, and then decides she doesn't really want to know. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's things like that in there, and so you know, like she'll she'll think, well, I I get, I've got this because I understand vampires and werewolves, and then she finds that the shaper uh, of the vampire, the werewolves, uh, just decided to do something mm -hmm. a little different. Uh, so it was kind of fun to be able to to take all of that because there's so much back. Uh, baggage connected to vampires mm -hmm. and werewolves and but there's so much of it that you can just throw away whatever you don't want and keep what you want and so that's what the shapers of this world did and effectively mm -hmm. that's what i did so that was kind of fun so uh, uh, that's kind of where i'm i'm playing with this stuff it, it really is because all of these shapers come from our world within the last hundred years or so she hasn't met anybody yet that's from way way back um they're all drawing on the mm -hmm. same references, right? So all of these are shaped worlds, but they're all worlds shaped by people who have been in influenced by the same pop culture stuff that we're all influenced by. So 
uh, it's a really very yeah. geeky series. Well, and, and, and very meta, <laughs> in <many ways>. too. <laughs> but I have a lot done with it. Yeah. Very, yes. <laughs> that's, that's so much fun. And I, I see a lot of people talking about portal fantasy and how, you know, especially when it comes to more YA portal fantasy. And I, I know you sort of straddle this adult and, and YA line in, in a lot of your fiction. But, you know, a lot of people will say like, oh, that's, you know, that's an oversaturated market or, you know, that's been done. It's all been done before. And especially with portal fantasy and or, or portal sci-fi, as, as the case may be, there are so many things we have yet to explore still and i i just think it's great that you're finding a way to do portal fantasy and portal portal sci-fi in a way that's so unique and also so self-aware because in a lot of ways you know sci-fi doesn't necessarily always end up being self-aware well it's a bit like you know we've all done the thing where we watch a horror movie and it's apparent that the people in the horror movie have never seen a horror movie in their lives or they wouldn't you know go into the house (laughs) or investigate that strange light or you know all that stuff uh, and yeah, this was very much a setup where, um, you know, that just doesn't happen. Shauna knows mm-hmm. all this stuff and everybody she runs into, the shapers of the worlds know all this stuff. And so it is, it is an extremely self-aware series of where it is and, and what it's, uh, what it's playing mm-hmm. with. So speaking of, of sort of drawing from our world and, and creating something new, you also work a lot with nonfiction and, you know, you, you mentioned that you, you go from engineering to geoscience and, you, you know, e- Ebola and genetics and all these things. How did those tie into your fiction? And was that an interest that happened before you were interested in, in, in sci-fi or was it sort of hand in hand? Kind of hand in hand. I mean, I started writing science fiction. My The first complete short story I wrote, I was 11 years old. It was something to do on a rainy <laughs> day. And uh, I wrote a short story and with a friend. I don't think he finished his, but I finished mine, and it was called Castor Glass Hypership Test Pilot. <laughs> so you can kind of see <laughs> I was into the yeah. science fiction thing very early on. And I wrote, you know, I wrote fiction, fiction, fiction all the time. But when I went to university, I realized you can't make a living as a writer, at least mm-hmm. not to begin with. And so I went into journalism. So the nonfiction kind of came from that. I was, I'm just a writer, basically. Um, and I was a journalist, a newspaper reporter and editor for eight years. And then I was communications officer for the Saskatchewan Science Center. I did a lot of science research for exhibits and stuff like that. Wrote a science column that went on for many years. So all of that nonfiction stuff uh, came while the fiction was percolating along. I started selling a story here and there. I actually sold nonfiction first. My first book was actually using Microsoft Publisher for Windows 95 was my actual first published book. That's (laughs) important. And my second published book was using Microsoft Publisher for Windows 97. So The long-awaited sequel. (laughs) Neither one will ever be made into a movie. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So the nonfiction stuff, I I was selling nonfiction books before I started selling novels, even though I was selling some Mm -hmm. short fiction and things like that. And then the two things just kind of went along. So... Basically, I'll write anything for anybody that was willing to pay me to write it, <laughs> pretty much. I would probably draw the line. I should say I would, might draw the line right. in a few places. But uh, if, you know, anything for a buck, I'll, I'll write. And uh, that kind of willingness to write all kinds of nonfiction and the ability to do it, I guess, uh, is what has led me to do things like, you know, genetics demystified from McGraw mm-hmm. Hill and, and uh, uh, the histories of engineering and geoscience and all those, a lot of children's science books. It's kind of my first nonfiction. I kind of got into the educational market with, with writing uh, short uh, books for the educational mm-hmm. market. 
And I still do that on the side as well. So the fiction and the nonfiction continue to go uh, mm -hmm. hand in hand. Well, it's, it's so important, I think, to get younger audiences interested in the way our our world works, at least to, to the best of our understanding so far. And and what a fun way to do it, you know, with straddling this sort of nonfiction educational market, but then also making it fun and seeing where it could possibly go with the more speculative work. It, it's been fun writing in the nonfiction market, um, you know, I, because it forces you to, to learn things that you don't <laughs> know. So alongside, because of, of course, they say write what you know, but that's totally <laughs> wrong. You don't write what you know, you write what you can <laughs> find out or what you can imagine in the case of fiction. And so in nonfiction, if somebody, you know, when I was doing more of it, the publisher would say, well, we've got this list of titles, which ones would you like? And I'd say, well, I'll do the one on the mutiny on the bounty because I'd like to know more about that. Or I'll do the one on mm -hmm. hemophilia. I don't know anything about hemophilia. I'm going to learn about hemophilia. And <laughs> even when I went to the adult market, I mean, I am not a geneticist, but I managed to write genetics demystified. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I would have to read it again to know what I learned in the course of writing <laughs> that book. And it's out of date now. Anyway, it's about 15 years old. Mm -hmm. But uh the great thing about writing nonfiction is that I'm learning and writing for young people. They're learning by reading the book, but they're learning just a little bit after me because I had to learn all that stuff when I wrote the book. Uh, and I just, I think it's a great way to keep, uh, you know, keep intellectually curious and, and you never know what will feed into your, your fiction. Um, when I was at the science center, we had an exhibit on uh, memory mm -hmm. Uh, it was somebody who had grown up in an Italian town, I think, and left in the Second World War, hadn't been back since. He'd drawn all the the houses from memory, and then he finally got to go back to the village and compare what he had drawn with, you know, and there were some interesting differences in what his mind had edited out and, and changed mm -hmm. and things like that. And it was that exhibit on memory that gave rise to my book, uh, Andy Nebula, Interstellar <laughs> Rockstar, where the aliens have a different way of their memory works different mm -hmm. than ours do. That one was just republished. I just republished that one is from the street to the stars. So that's why I'm thinking of it. But you never know where the inspiration for for science fiction in particular will come from. There's so much, all the time I'm seeing science stories that I think, you know, that would make a science fiction story if I wasn't, you know, busy writing a novel or whatever and I had time to write that story. So yeah, it's a, it's a great way to feed, uh, nonfiction feeds into fiction mm -hmm. for sure. So I mean, you, you sort of brushed on this a little bit, but what what are some of the um, the topics or, or articles that you have bookmarked that you'd really love to explore more in your speculative fiction? Oh, I don't think I have anything bookmarked. <laughs> uh, if I got to the point where I was looking for an idea, I would probably go back. You know, I've, I wrote I wrote a science column for 20 mm -hmm. years, and most of that is archived on my website. So sometimes if there's something I'm interested in, I'll think, you know, I wrote something about that. And then I can go back and look at that science column. And then that points me in the direction of something mm -hmm. else. Um, but yeah, it's not like I have a list of ideas that I'm going to get to someday. Yeah. It's like when I need an idea, I just find just, one. <laughs> just mine, mine your previous stuff. That's great. So before we, you know, we were, we were on air, you mentioned this other new book that that's coming out and tell us a little bit about that. Cause that sounds really fun. Well, I have a podcast called uh, The World Shapers, where I interview science fiction and fantasy authors about their creative process. And I've had some really major authors on their international bestsellers, and I'm still doing it. Um, I'm into the third year now. And <clears throat> I also have my small, own small publishing company called Shadowpaw Press, which is named after our cat, Shadowpaw. <laughs> 
And uh, that makes me a member of Sask Books, which is the Association of Saskatchewan Book Publishers. And at their annual meeting last year, there was a publisher from Winnipeg came in and talked about kickstarting an anthology. And I was listening to this. Was, she did it very successfully. And I thought, hey, I know some authors. And it took me a while to get around to it because it's a bit of a learning curve when you start looking at launching a Kickstarter campaign and, and all of that. And I had other things to do, but I eventually got around to it and successfully, I, I talked to my first year guests because I had to cut it off somewhere. And um, a lot of them said, yes, even the ones who said they couldn't do it were very supportive. So uh, earlier this year, uh, back in March, you know, good, good time. Nothing else was happening in March that changed <laughs> the world or anything like that. <laughs> I had a Kickstarter, um, which was successful. Uh, $15,700 Canadian I raised over, I, I'd asked for thirteen five, so that was good. And so Shapers of Worlds was the result. And it's a collection of, uh, it's a mixture of both um, reprints and original fiction. It's about half and half mm -hmm. with uh, some really major authors in it. So we've got, um, just grabbing the cup, I don't want to forget anybody. <laughs> I've got uh, new fiction from Seanan McGuire, Tanya Huff, David Weber, Ellie Modisett Jr., DJ Butler, Christopher Rocchio, John C. Wright, somebody named Edward Willett, <laughs> and uh, Shelley Adina. And then I have uh, reprints from John Scalzi, David Brin, Joe Haldeman, Julie Sharnada, Fonda Lee, uh, Dr. Charles E. Gannon, Gareth L. Powell, Derek Kunskin, and Thorea Dyer. So wow, it's a nice substantial <laughs> chunk of fiction. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, yeah, the Kickstarters, 366 backers, they got their books first. Uh, the ebook came out on September 22nd. It's available everywhere. And the print is in the works and should be out uh, November 17th. And I've got a distributor involved for that instead of just print on demand. So mm -hmm. uh, any bookstore will be able to get it uh, quite easily. So, yeah, I've been very, very, very happy with it. And because it works so well, I've already reached out to my second year guests. And I hope to do another Kickstarter uh, in the new year and have a Shapers of Worlds volume two about this time next year. That's fantastic. I I love when people are able to, to come together and sort of play on on a theme with with anthologies and some of the best fiction I've been able to read was in like you know the the older um, years best science fiction and horror or fantasy and horror those were just you know so informative because you can really get into these these worlds and so many different ones you know just just in a you know a couple hours worth of reading. Yeah, they were a great influence on me too. I mean, if I look at my, my bookstore, my bookstore, my mm -hmm. bookshelf behind me, um, you know, I've still got an old anthology, two two volume anthology from the fifties uh, back there with uh, some of the great writers from that time in it. And I always gravitated to those when I was growing up. So, and as I say in my my uh, intro to the book, if you had told me back when I was reading the Forever War by Joe Haldeman uh, as a teenager that sometime down the road, I would be publishing a, a story by Joe Haldeman in an anthology that I had edited, uh, I would have thought that was extremely <laughs> unlikely to ever happen. And yet, here we are. <laughs> and I've had dinner with Joe Haldeman and his wife, and you know, and I've met these people. That's, that's some alternate world that, that, that you've shaped. <laughs> yeah. All of these things would have seemed impossible to me at the time. Oh, that's wonderful. So you're, you're really quite the, the hybrid author. You know, you've been published by the big traditional publishers, but also have sort of delved in into kickstarting, and obviously both have such big pros and cons. Do you have one that that you prefer at all, or is that is that not a safe question? 
No, it's the same question. I mean, I love Daw Books. They're a wonderful publisher. This the Moonlit World was my eleventh, I think, and I've sold my next one is not in that mm-hmm. series uh, that I've sold to them. It's a space opera called The Tangled Stars, which uh, will be coming out in twenty twenty two because I haven't written it yet. Awesome. <laughs> I should get on that. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's coming up. So I love I love the just doing the writing and the rewriting and then all of the distribution and everything goes to, you know, that's not my concern. Um, mm-hmm. I like that aspect of traditional publishing. But uh, the, the doing it myself, while I can't say I'm, you know, getting rich at that, it's still nice to be able to get some of my older work or stuff that was from publishers that went out of business, that's happened to me a few times, or, you know, orphan mm-hmm. works and things like that. It's nice to have a, a way that I can still get those out there. And they'll be there forever, right? If somebody right. five years from now decides they want to buy one of my, my books, because of publishing it myself, it'll it'll still be available. That's mm-hmm. happening with traditional publishing, too, on the ebook side, but the print books still kind of disappear over time. Um, yeah. So, yeah, they, they both have their strengths and, and uh, not, I don't say weaknesses, pluses and minuses, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I for for me I just I love the long time spans with more traditional publishing, you know, where you can Yeah, I'm 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 a slow writer. And so I appreciate being able to sort of languish in my worlds um, you know, as as long as I need to with these these much longer deadlines as opposed to, you know, a lot of more you know, smaller presses and and indie publishing. There's a much greater push for, you know, monthly monthly books coming out or or something like that. I just I don't have the stamina for that. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm, I think the one reason why what I'm doing is a little different from the people who are, you know, writing these series and trying to crank those books mm-hmm. out really fast, which apparently seems to be a way to make more money <laughs> than I do as an independent publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm doing at the moment is just trying to get some of my stuff that otherwise isn't available, right. available again. But I also, it's also an opportunity you know, and I'm interested in possibly publishing other people's stuff if I ever got to that point mm-hmm. uh, in a small way. I did do uh, one of my, my one of my most successful books from Shadowpaw Press actually was my grandfather-in-law's first World War memoirs. Oh, wonderful. Uh, it's called One Lucky Devil. He wrote them late in life. He, he died in like 79. I never knew him, but he wrote this, his memoirs late in life and they were around the house. And I always wanted to do something with them. And I got my act together and published it uh, just in time for the centennial of the armistice uh, in 2018 um, and got a lot of attention from that. And it's still mm-hmm. something that gets people are still buying that book. And of course, every year I can point people to it again as Remembrance Day comes around again. And we live in his house. I mean, the, they bought this house in 1939 and it's still full of their stuff. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so I've kind of felt like I knew him, but I, I never met him. So I liked being able to do that too. And I can see doing that again if the right project came along. As mm-hmm. long as if the author that does it realizes that I am a very, very small publisher. <laughs> <laughs> got, got got a big name, but but small scale. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if I'll ever do that or not. But I, I can see it happening once I work through my own stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the ability to share some of these stories, you know, especially as, you know, during the, the current pandemic and, and whatnot, you know, we're, we're losing a lot of people and a lot of people's stories and being able to immortalize that in in some way you know even though i mean the internet seems like it's it's probably forever so far um and being able to to share those stories with with people and connect with multiple generations that way is is really wonderful aspect of you know smaller press or or, or indie publishing it's an opportunity that we have in the province there's a, a couple of hybrid publishers 
uh, where they mm -hmm. do a lot of, you know, they do really great work on the editing and the book design and everything, but, you know, people pay them uh, for their time to, to do that. Um, but that is a place where I, as a lot of this kind of material tends to show up is that, you know, people have this story and it's clearly of no interest to any major traditional publisher and they don't have the skill themselves to, to, to self-publish. Uh, so they find someone who can do that work for them. And uh, some of those books have been very successful actually mm -hmm. as well. So it is, it's the ease of, it's technology that has made it possible. The fact that you can have any, you can know, I tell people when I'm doing workshops, if you really want to, and you have a Word document, you could have an ebook out on Amazon half an hour after this workshop is over, right. or at least in the process of being approved. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you should, right. but the technology is there and it's made it much easier. And with, with print on demand and stuff, I mean, I also have, I was an art finder and I've done a lot of design and stuff, so I can do some of my own cover work and mm -hmm. not all the time, but you know, I can do some of my own covers quite successfully and and layout and stuff like that there are tools out there to make all that that possible which just didn't exist you know when i was starting writing fiction and and looking for publishers it just wasn't an option <laughs> and now it is mm -hmm. yeah yeah for sure so i mean we've we've touched on on these two great projects that that you have going on right now but what's next for you but I mentioned the Tangled Stars. Uh, mm -hmm. That's sort of my next big fiction project. I have a short story I have to write for an anthology. I should probably get on that too. Uh, but the <laughs> Tangled Stars is it's due it it's due to Daw in March. It's 150,000 words, so I should start that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's potentially a series. It's potentially a series uh, as well. Um, World Shapers. I don't know if book four will come from DAW, but if it doesn't, that might be something that I put out through Shadow Pop Press myself mm -hmm. as well. Book four would take place in a uh, a film noir world, oh, <laughs> With, uh, possibly even a black and white world, because I can do that if I want to. Right. Um, so I'm, I do hope to continue that series. And then we'll see. I've got a bunch of projects with Shadow Pop Press uh, of my other books. Like I just put out a book. Oh yeah, I have another book. Just came out this week. Uh, oh, congrats! Under my pseudonym E.C. Blake, called "The Blue Fire." Oh, neat. Which is a young adult fantasy, which again is something that was orphaned by a, a press that went out of business a few years ago. Mm -hmm. It was originally published under a different title and under my own name, but it does tie in very much with the kind of stuff that E.C. Blake wrote, which was kind of young adult flavored fantasy. Mm -hmm. So I'm putting it out under E.C. Blake, and it's out in ebook now. And the, so I've got, um, and I've got several other. Um, manuscripts and things in hand that uh, might be coming out through Shadowpaw Press as I find the time. So lots to keep me busy. And a couple of manuscripts out to other publishers. So there's a middle grade book out that I'm waiting to hear back from and a uh, fantasy proposal to another publisher. So um, That's exciting. Yeah, I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's good to be busy. It's good to have projects. <laughs> well, when you're a full-time freelancer, it's always good to have something to be working on. Right. Of course, I married an engineer. That was my best career move. <laughs> it's very smart. Yeah, I, I saw this this conversation recently on on Twitter about how freelance writers um, and just just artists in in general um, how they're affording health insurance. You know, down down here in the states, and most of the comments were, "I married well," <laughs> and that that seems to be a theme for sure. I still remember. I must have been a teenager when I read it in Writer's Digest or somewhere. A definition of a freelance writer as a man with a typewriter and a working wife. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, my, my husband and I are both, we have the same, um, 
wonderful, but perhaps not the best paying day job. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll constantly joke, like, maybe, maybe we should both find, you know, better, better paying spouses and <laughs> figure, figure out how to, how to make this work. <laughs> but, but here we are. Well, of course, my other big interest is, uh, is I've, I've also done some acting a stage actor. Oh, fun. So, you know, if the writing doesn't, doesn't work out, I can always fall back on that other, uh, you know, a reliable profession, mm-hmm. <laughs> stage acting. <laughs> so do you, um, speaking of, of stage acting, do you do your, your audiobook narration by, by any chance? Uh, I have done a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so time consuming. It is. <laughs> um, it takes hours and hours and hours to do an audiobook, and I'm usually trying to get stuff written. So um, I have done a couple, though. Uh, I actually did uh, um, a, a YA book of mine called Spirit Singer, which is also freshly out from Shadowpot Press after going through a couple of other publishers. Um, mm-hmm. I actually did that one myself and then wished I hadn't because I was entirely the wrong voice for it. Yeah. Uh, so I have another YA series uh, called uh, Shards of Excalibur, a five book series. And for that one, I found a female narrator, Elizabeth Clapp, who was absolutely wonderful and did a bang on job. And again, it's because the main character is a 15 year old girl and my voice just doesn't lend itself to that. <laughs> um so, but I do have, I actually have the audiobook rights back for some of my early DAW books. And I've been meaning now for about three years to do them. And I still haven't, still haven't done them. Cool. And I have done one, uh, Right to Know, which was a, a science fiction novel I've done. So I, I do do some. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more a question of the time commitment yeah. and finding time to do it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a huge time commitment. Even just trying to find the right narrator, like you said, you know, you really have to find someone whose voice fits with the tone of of the work but also the characters and you know i i was waiting through you know 40 something narrators for just one one single series you know by the end it's like everyone's voices have blended together and my brain is dribbling out my ears so yeah i've only i've only done the auditioning well i didn't really i actually went out and found her Mm -hmm. by listening to samples and then i think i asked maybe two or three people was all i asked Mm -hmm. and then picked elizabeth clep um, and she was really, really good. Um, most of the ones I, most of mine, like with Daw, the ones that have come out as audiobooks were, you know, an audiobook company right. bought the rights and they found the narrator. And I, I might have a little input, but that was about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I can imagine this. Well, I, again, having been a stage actor and also doing stage directing, sometimes I have done the audition process, and uh, I can imagine listening to voice after voice after voice. It'd be hard to distinguish them after a while. Yeah, you'd have to take really good notes. <laughs> Yeah, I had like, you know, five pages in, in my notebooks and then I'm asking my husband like, well, okay, option one or option two? It's like being at the optometrist, but for your ears. You know? yeah. Is it clearer here? Yeah. Or here? <laughs> I don't know anymore. <laughs> I get that way at the optometrist right. too. I don't know. Sure, sure. It's fine. <laughs> just just give me my glasses back. <laughs> oh. um, so, so where can my listeners uh, find you and all of your amazing work? My main website is edwardwillett.com, two T's on Willett, W-I-L-L-E-T-T, edwardwillett.com. Um, the podcast, oh, I also have an online store, edwardwillettshop.com, where you can buy autographed books. Um, the podcast is theworldshapers.com. Um, and uh, yeah, there's some other minor websites for various things, but those are the main ones where you can find everything else. And then I'm on Twitter at ewillett, E-W-I-L-L-E-T-T on Facebook at edward.willett 
and on Instagram at Edward Willett Author because I missed the memo about using the same thing for all <laughs> your social media <laughs> accounts. Or rather, I got into it too soon when I when I joined Twitter and I didn't use it at all for years, but I, w- I had the account and it was already E. Willett, so I've been kind of stuck with mm-hmm. that. You, you can tell the, the folks who joined early or who, who joined before they had maybe a, a specific career path in, in mind because it's always, you know, some jumbled name or some reference to something and then like a, a string of numbers it's like okay well <laughs> I have to remember that it didn't seem to matter at the time right. <laughs> that's great and I'll, I'll definitely be be doing some some digging through your work so thank you who knows what you'll uncover. oh yes <laughs> <laughs> this has been the amphibian press podcast i'm vs holmes and with me today was edward willett thank you so much for listening